today in our podcast, I'm really excited to have Jeremy Wolf. Jeremy is one of my favorite yoga instructors. He's located down in Denver. He teaches at Samadhi and Kindness, um, teaches Hatha and Vinyasa fusion meditation. He does teacher trainings. He's a Reiki master, does some awesome things with music, so very multi-talented. But today, we're going to draw on his experience with meditation and specifically with yoga nidra. So, Jeremy, is there anything else that you want to tell us about yourself before we start? That pretty much sums up what I've been up to, what I tend to get up to day to day. Besides being a dad, too. And a, and a, right. And other. <laughs> Which, right, all the spaces that aren't filled by the things you listed are filled up um, by being a father and and uh, having family time and, and, right, that whole side of things. Awesome. Non-working, non-serving uh, side of things. Great. So tell us a little bit about how you got started with meditation and yoga nidra specifically. Well, I actually stumbled onto meditation and yoga nidra accidentally. Uh, I was 18 years old at the time, and long story short, I came across this community radio station that was playing ambient music uh, with the likes of Brian Eno and Steve Roach and The Orb and Future Sound of London and things like that. And I had never heard any music like this before. And I was fascinated by it, and so I started to tune in weekly to the show. And what I sort of did spontaneously was set up like three little boom boxes around the room to create a stereo effect. And then I would just lie down on my bed and um, get lost in these atmospheric soundscapes. And I started to go into these states of yoga nidra. Of course, I had no context at the time uh, for what was happening. All I knew it was that it was fascinating and that I felt really good afterward and that my life started to be shifting just in terms of what... Um, what what I prioritized and the way I perceived the world. Um, and I started practicing this. I would lay there flowing in and out of yoga nidra really spontaneously for like three or four hours at a time. And I started doing this more like three or four nights a week. And uh, I didn't know what was happening or why, just that I really enjoyed it. And it wasn't until I did my 200-hour teacher training in India in 2006 uh, yoga Nidra was actually a part of what they taught in the program, so it was something that we practiced every day. And I had been doing it for a number of years. It was 1993 when I had started um, practicing. And then they sort of broke down what the practice was, how it functions, what was happening, and why it can be so profound. And it was then that I realized that my life had changed dramatically almost overnight, and it was because of these deeply meditative states that I was going into. And when I learned about the mechanics of yoga nidra and the different techniques and experiences that you could have, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what I've been doing, you know, for over a decade. And this is why my life has been changing and my relationship to life has been changing. And then I started a more focus where I was practicing different types of yoga nidra and experimenting with guiding the practice as well. Um, I hadn't had a lot of the technical knowledge about the practice up to that point, but certainly a lot of experiential knowledge, um, both on the more waking states as well as the contentless deep sleep states. 
And then it just kind of went on from there. Um, when I did my 200-hour training in India, I expressed my fascination with and love for Yoga Nidra to one of the lead teachers there. And he basically said to me, take this, teach this. It's all in here. It's all in here. And I didn't know what he meant by that at the time. And it wasn't even until you know years later that I started to go deeper into study um, with, for example, the Amrit tradition and, and other traditions where I started to realize just what he meant, that it in it, in it is uh, a complete teaching and a complete practice in terms of yoga. And so that's been the primary focus of my offerings um, and uh, something that, that's very dear to me. And seeing, you know, for years now how how profound it can be in terms of healing and transformation for people firsthand uh, just continues to validate um, the practice. Oh, that's awesome. That's really interesting. Um, and I know as far as styles of yoga nidra, I've studied under you for the Satyananda Saraswati style, and uh, I also got to participate in the Amrit yoga nidra trainings, of which you were part of the teacher set. And I believe you've also studied the Swami Rama method, the Richard Miller method, and with Rod Stryker. So I'm curious, how are those the five that you studied? And give us a little feel for what's the same, what's what's different amongst them? Well, it's a good question because I think, like is common with humans, I would say when when people grow up, uh, in a particular system or with a particular way of doing things and maybe lacking the awareness around some other systems and approaches, they can make assumptions that may not be entirely accurate. Sometimes I, I hear practitioners speak about um, their their loyalty to a particular method um, with the understanding that perhaps some or all of the other methods don't hold the true essence of yoga nidra. And after studying the four main lineages, uh, Rod Stryker being, uh, he used to more represent the Satyananda lineage. Now he more represents the Himalayan lineage or the Swami Rama tradition. And um, of those four lineages, after having studied in depth with all four, what I see is they all share the same aim. Um, They're all completely authentic and they're all extremely effective. And... Sometimes their efficacy just has to deal with the people that are practicing, the fact that certain people respond to certain techniques. There are a lot of congruencies between the four methods and certainly um, a number of of number of distinctions. I would say for all four, the aim is yoga with a capital Y. The aim is to realize the depth of your nature, to realize the truth beyond the changing dualistic world that we experience moment to moment and that they all four share that ultimate aim. And the methodology for each certainly differs and certain traditions will emphasize certain stages of the practice or certain techniques. And I think that's where most of the distinctions come in. Um, Three of the traditions share the same map Whereas the fourth, the Himalayan tradition, that's the most distinct in terms of its approach. Um, the three that share the same would be the Satyananda, the IREST or Richard Miller method, and the Amrit method. All three of those models use the map of the koshas 
or creating a linearity of practice or creating the movement of attention from the external world to the internal world through a, an elaborate sequence of pratyahara or really an internalization of awareness or withdrawing of awareness back inside. And the Satyananda, I would say, is the most linear in that it's very stage by stage for the most part. Um, I think for that reason, it can be very accessible to people, certainly in them understanding what it is that we're doing and why. That this thing we call the human being, according to the model of the koshas, says that we have five distinct dimensions of experience or five distinct layers of experience that sort of house the self or the soul or awareness that lies at the center. And I think the Satyananda method is easy to follow. And he probably puts the most emphasis on visual imagery. And I believe part of that has to do with the fact that that's the way the mind relates to perceived uh, or rather stored information. And when we're working at the root level to clear the disturbances that have become embedded in our conditioning in the unconscious, um, it, it can be extremely helpful to work at the imagery stage. In terms of the Amrit method, their, their method is the most scripted. Uh, it comes from guidance directly from Amrit Desai, which they've built into script cards so you can reference these cards and rearrange them in, in logical orders to sort of customize the experience. However, all the experiences come from a person who can directly transmit Yoga Nidra because he can enter the state um, at will, even in wakeful awareness in, in very little time. And so you're speaking from someone who has realized the depths of, depths of these teachings and shared the techniques accordingly. Um, they do also use the kosha model and the Amrit method of Yoga Nidra, the integrative Amrit method. And sometimes there'll be sort of less linearity uh, in how they navigate the koshas. Some may, de may be de-emphasized in a particular practice. And they also use more preparatory techniques, whether that's as you're actually entering the practice of Yoga Nidra to help facilitate relaxation and deep parasympathetic response, or just how you connect to the techniques as you're moving through the practice. So some of them can be a little more active, um, even amongst the actual practice of Yoga Nidra. And then their language is unique, uh, definitely, and that's one of the things I really love about the Amrit method of Yoga Nidra. Pranamaya kosha or pranamaya is really the emphasis of that method because they recognize the transition between physical body awareness, which is where most of us are most of the time, to subtler states of awareness is through the body of energy or the body of prana. So there's great emphasis on bringing attention to prana and the pranic body and also to sort of re-anchoring the various practices back into the third eye center, back into the seat of integration. So that's another thing that's uh, distinct about their method. They also, both Satyananda and the Amrit method and the IRS method, all use sankalpa. They all use intention. And it's not to say the intention always has to be present. You could certainly do a practice effectively without the use of sankalpa. 
but it is a tool that shows up in all three of those methods. Along with the use of intention in the Amrit method, they also use, at times, affirmations. And these can be customized for the individual or they can be uh, more general affirmations that speak to someone's well-being or capacity to awaken their potential or to heal or various uh, number of things. And I really like that aspect of it because you can sort of rally one's attention into a positive direction with some of these affirmations. They also bring in, toward the end of their practice, the importance of lineage, whether that's that you're connected to a specific lineage of teachings or teachers or that you connect to the level of support that you have in the world and really feel that and feel held and nourished by that as you step back out into the world after a practice. Um, the IRS method, I had just most recently um, begun study with Richard Miller. It's been something I've wanted to do for a number of years and finally had the opportunity to study with him. And it was wonderful. It was um, yet another unique approach to the practice. Certainly that shares a lot of similarities to the two I've discussed already, um, but he definitely has his own approach. In terms of the use of sankalpa or intentions, he, he kind of has three levels of intention. One speaks to a capacity for someone to access a level of innate peace or well-being or groundedness or calmness or safety that they can stay connected to throughout the practice something in them that they may be more able to access if they think of a particular place or an environment, but they conjure this thing up as a way of setting the ground for safety and um, the very state that we're looking to access would be, which would be beyond the content of experience and the various levels of disturbance that often come with that. Um, he also uses Sankalpa in terms of... Um, Planning for the future. What is it that you want to create in your life or release or achieve? And then there's also just a simple intention for the practice today. So whether it's just that you want to remain awake or that you'll allow the body's innate intelligence to come forth to heal uh, or whatever it is, that there can be an intention just for that very practice. I, I always was under the impression, because he speaks so much about sensation, that uh, he too was emphasizing pranamaya in terms of the practice. Though now after studying with him, what I see is that his primary emphasis, at least initially, is in anamaya or the physical body. And I understand sensation as sort of occupying both of those realms, the physical body and the subtle body, depending on which sensation you're talking about. And I feel because of the broad uh, population that he works with, he wants everything to be very anchored and tangible and experienced so that people can really work with that and, and understand it in a way that's also tangible and accessible. So I feel that he does give a lot of attention to bringing everything back to the body. How do you feel it? What does it feel like? Where do you feel it? Does it have a location? Which also teaches people how to do this in their waking life. And that's one of the things that he really emphasizes, especially because in his training, you'll work in dyads or groups of two where you'll be in conversation about what's present 
in your experience right now? What what are you feeling uh, or what are you aware of? And just sort of being present with whatever's there. His emphasis is on this idea of welcoming whatever's present because most of us move through life uh, in a state of constant reactivity. And it doesn't mean that we're reacting in a way that says we're irritable or angry, but we're reacting to the senses, whether it's that we like what we're experiencing or sensing and we want more and we perhaps become attached to it or attached to getting more or that we're against what we're experiencing through the senses. And so we're in a state of resistance around it. But we tend to be for or against in most moments of our lives. And he really wants to invite us to step back into awareness rather than into the sort of drama that plays out when we, we when we become identified with the content of our experience. So he wants this welcoming thing to be present where we can allow whatever's here to be here and allow it to pass when it's time for it to pass rather than becoming attached to it or resistant to it in a way which in either case will ultimately hang on to it and disallow it to move through our experience. So that's a big piece. And and so it's the reintegration of coming out of the practice of yoga nidra and applying it moment to moment in your life, that this is an ability that you have to where yoga nidra isn't something that you simply do for 20 or 45 minutes, but it becomes a way of being that shapes how you relate to the content of your experience, whether that's external or internal. And so I find that, that what's that? I, I was just going to say that that's actually really interesting to me because I'm less familiar with eye rest. And having done his meditations, it feels like the way I interpreted it was uh, there was a lot of left and right brain kinds of things, you know, feeling opposites and things like that. And I hadn't really connected it in the way that you're describing. So that's very interesting to me. It's true. I mean, he... He emphasizes this dualistic approach and that ultimately the aim is uh, a non-dual experience, which is to rest in a place of neutrality regardless of what is or isn't present. So he does work a lot in polarity, um, which which is great and I find can be very effective for people. It can also be more provocative for people depending on where they are um, in their lives and what they may or may not be struggling with. Um, there's also a lot more invitation to simply notice what's present rather than sort of planting the information instead of saying a lot of now experience this, now see this, now see that. It's more what do you notice, what is present. And sometimes there'll be a little um, there'll be a little direction given in terms of what you might look for, at what level you might um, sort of investigate your experience. Um, but I find that it also honors whatever is present for that individual at the time. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And I think certainly when you're talking about how do we make the tools that we use to move toward this thing called yoga nidra as a practice, how do we make those tools available in moment-to-moment experience? Because that's really where the rubber meets the road in terms of um, navigating our own lives in a much more skillful and graceful way. So when you lead meditation, do you have a favorite style? Do you tend to kind of create a fusion of multiple styles? I would say I don't I don't have a favorite. Uh I try to give now that I'm 
formally trained in the in the IRS method um, through the level one. I try to give equal attention now to all four practices when I teach publicly, and I'll usually rotate week to week. There are some weeks that I'll step more into an intuitive space and let there be a fusion of the different techniques across the lineages to explore what if we take some of the potent tools from each one and rather than keeping them separated, how can they be woven together in a way that still holds the same aim but explores um, the accessibility for different people because, as I mentioned earlier, different people will respond to different techniques. Some people love lots of visualization. If you don't give them visualization, they kind of feel gypped or that they don't, quote, unquote, get in. Uh, for some people, visualization just becomes too busy, becomes about thinking, and it can be distracting. And so just as much as, uh, just as different as people can be, the experiences that people have in yoga nidra can be. And so I like to experiment with trying to sometimes meld them. Um, and again, in a way that's fluid, in a way that's cohesive and makes sense, but to say, well, there's different ways to dance toward the state of yoga nidra. And what happens if we try it like this? And what happens if we try it like that? Not just willy-nilly, but um, understanding and honoring the different stages and utilizing techniques that can successfully guide people through each stage. The, the other lineage that I hadn't spoken much to yet was the Himalayan Institute lineage, or the one that I received um, study with through Rod Stryker, um, more, more specifically that method over the past few years. And that's one that differs from the other three in that it doesn't use the model of the koshas for this internalization of attention. And in fact, the emphasis in this method is more to get to the state of yoga nidra. We call the techniques that guide us toward that state yoga nidra, in as much as we call the practices of yoga, yoga, even though we could say they're not the actual state of yoga, same for yoga nidra, and the emphasis in this method is to actually enter the state of yoga nidra. So there's less elaborateness in the techniques and tools used to get there, but just a very efficient map to get from waking awareness into this conscious deep, deep sleep state. And I would say from that standpoint, it's the simplest, and it's just recognizing that Consciousness, as yoga says, exists in four states, waking, dreaming, sleep, and what's called the fourth state, or Turiya, which is where we're ultimately aiming to go in Yoga Nidra, to realize this background of awareness, this um, um, unseparable or inseparable um, reality that is not broken up into parts like the one that we experience in the other three states. And... That's, in some way, I could say this would be the simplest approach for someone to access. And in some sense, it could also be um, a very deep approach. And for some people that need a little more content for their mind to work with in order to relax or let go, sometimes they can struggle with that method simply for that reason. But what I find is, as I go through and lead the different four methods, and I like to lead them. Most of the time, I lead them in their pure form. And when I do that, I just like to hear from the class and from individuals about how they experience the different ones. And undoubtedly, 
every single time some people are like, well, it didn't go as deep. And some people are like, that was the deepest. So it really, it really depends on the day, the time, and all, certainly all the environmental factors of that person's experience when they come into the room. What's your favorite style to meditate to? Of these four? Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a favorite. I don't. I, in, in the early days, as I started to explore the different ones, I would lean toward one or the other. And then what I started to realize is sometimes it was that I was leaning toward that teacher's voice or that I was leaning toward the tools that they used. And now I, I would have to say that I have equal appreciation for all. Um, I, I could just spin the wheel and choose one and do it, and, and that would be perfect. I really have no no inclination other than certainly there are certain teachers or recordings that I have that I maybe lean into more frequently, but I'm also trying to acquire more and just how different people are delivering the practice or representing that particular lineage and get a sense of that and how it works and if it works for me and in what ways. Okay. So how about the use of sound? I know you do, and I've not been privileged enough to experience it myself, but I know you do something called Sound Off Yoga Nidra. So tell us a little bit about how you integrate sound into Yoga Nidra. Mm. Well, that's that's interesting because for me, sound was my doorway into meditation. And at the same time, some people will say, oh, listening to music or focusing on um, you know, some type of external sound isn't meditation. And, of course, we could go back and forth on how we want to define what meditation is or isn't. But what I know is that it's sound through this ambient music that I stumbled across um, back in 1993 that actually got my mind still, that, um, that sort of corralled my mind into a single stream of attention, and that moved me from attention to the world of form and objects to the dimension of space formlessness and that was really my doorway in just uh, again spontaneously if I didn't have three boom boxes set around my room to create this you know ambient sound experience then I would sometimes do it in headphones and it put all the sound and all of my attention in my own head as opposed to distracted out in the world and I found that and still find it to be extremely um, effective for people and the, the guys that run the sound off experience, which is the remote headphone experience, they're becoming very popular in Denver. They're working with a lot of yoga classes, aerobics classes, lectures and presentations and sort of all kinds of formats now where people want to take the voice of the speaker and possibly even live music if it's an event where there's musical accompaniment and put it inside people's heads to where you have your own headphones you can adjust the volume, and you're sort of more internalized to your own experience to some degree. It certainly depends on the context of the event. But I've had great conversations with the Sound Off guys, and we've even used it um, in therapeutic applications for individuals that have trouble focusing or can't handle too many streams of sensory information at once to aid their ability to learn or to focus. We've had good success with that. I look forward to working with them more at that level. But we've been collaborating to create a yoga nidra experience where basically I'll choose some very atmospheric music. It's, 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 it's not so engaging. It's really about 
drawing your attention from form to space. At least that's what it does for me, and that's how I point people to it. But I'll use some background music, which will be transmuted, transmitted through the headphones, my voice on top of it, and then I'll guide a yoga nidra experience. Sometimes a fusion. Uh, it really depends. Because some of the methods say, don't use music. Bring people to silence. Bring people to stillness. And ultimately, that's what we want to do. And I know from personal experience, sound actually helped me get there. And I know for some people, especially with as busy as their minds are, if there's some constant thread that can create this even passive sense of dharana or concentration, it can be very helpful for um, building this sense of inner focus. And we've had great success with the events. I love doing them. And the response has been great as well. Awesome. So I have a question around mindfulness. So a lot of people listening to this are going to be yogis, and they're probably, everything you're saying is resonating, even all the yogic terminology. Other folks are listening to this from a place of they're not a yogi, they might be interested in mindfulness, and are asking the question, so how is Yoga Nidra going to help me be more mindful? So if you took it from that perspective, what would you say is the benefit for someone in business, someone in sports, and in any area of life of doing yoga nidra meditation and how that's going to help them in their everyday life? Well, as I mentioned before, most of us go through life reacting. Um, I like this, I want more. I don't like this, I want less. So I, I want to avoid it, however that shows up, which is a natural part of our experience. It's, you know, it's a it's a modification of, what actually keeps us safe and keeps us alive at some level. Uh, it also creates a lot of conflict and disturbance because we're sort of in this constant tug of war with our experiences and with life. And really what reaction is, is just our habits that have been conditioned by the past playing themselves out again in the present, which again, serve us at some level, but also keep us very restricted at another level. We can move around on autopilot as we go through life, and our habits are sort of not only determining how we show up and relate to new experiences, but ultimately our destiny, the, the types of choices that we're making and where the sequence of those choices actually take us. When we practice yoga nidra, it's temporarily stepping out of this tug of war and just being present to whatever's present without being for or against it, this place of neutral awareness or what's called witness awareness. And it's when we create that space between the stimulus and how we respond to it that we have the opportunity to choose differently, that we don't react in the same way that we used to, or at least we don't have to, because we're creating more space for choice. And whether that's how we are being the presence of our family, how we're being in the workplace, how we're being in relation to our fears and challenges, how we're being in relationship to opportunities or our goals or the things that we, you know, how we want to change the course of our life, perhaps. We need a level of attention um, that's outside the realm of conditioned habit that will create uh, the possibility for a new experience. And so mindfulness, I think, uh, is something that does come out of the practice, definitely, because we're paying more attention to what's here rather than just sort of letting 
um, our old reactions shape our current experience and ultimately our future one. Okay. So what advice do you have for people that want to go out and experience Yoga Nidra for the first time? Yes, do it. (laughs) Go out and experience (laughs) it. (laughs) Um, Not to have any expectation. I I would say the first thing, the first thing is know that you can't do the practice incorrectly. Whether you fall asleep, whether you think you fell asleep, whether you are completely awake and restless the whole time, know that you can't do the practice. You can't fail at the practice. It's just not possible. The practice ultimately is to be present with whatever is present. And the rest of the tools will steer you through deep states of relaxation so you can enter these subtle states of awareness. And to just let, let it happen on that day, on that night, at that time, with that teacher, in that classroom, however it's meant to happen. So let go of expectation and certainly let go of any self-judgment. And remember that the practice is to just be with what's present. So whether it feels like it is working or isn't working, don't react to that. Just say, okay, I'm aware. Or, okay, there's irritation present in my body. Okay, no problem. That would be the first thing I would say to, to someone that's that's exploring the practice for the first time. And the second thing, I guess, would be if you're discouraged for any reason, go back and try it again. Give it a second shot. Try a different teacher. Try a different location. There's lots and lots of Yoga Nidra on YouTube and iTunes and now Spotify and certainly other places as well. Um, there's a lot you can find on Amazon to order. There's there's a whole lot out there. There's a smaller percentage, I would say, of practices that are really good, but ultimately you want to find what works for you. So if any of our listeners would like to explore your yoga nidra, how could they do that? I do have a, a CD, and it's also available digitally. And I haven't uploaded it to iTunes or anything. It was my first professional one, so to speak, and I never went that far with it. I just sort of had CDs made and then eventually made it available digitally. Um, I I am going to have more coming out. I'm on Insight Timer now, which is uh, still, if I understand correctly, it's still a free app. And I don't have Yoga Nidras on there, but I have a couple of short meditations. There will be Yoga Nidras on there eventually. And I'll also, I also have a couple of CDs in the works. I don't know how soon those will be complete. Uh, I'm actually working with a good friend of mine who's a musician who will create the atmosphere for one of them. And currently, if you want to find the one that I made, gosh, it's been, it was back in 2010 now, so it feels really old to me. And I've certainly learned a whole lot since I recorded it. Uh, but based on people's feedback and experience, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a fair practice. It does work. And if you want to find that, you could always go to my website, which would be the simplest, which is www.metameme.com which is M-E-T-A-M-E-M-E dot org slash Jeremy Wolf. If you go there, that's my website. You can find a link to the digital on there in terms of acquiring that or a physical CD for those that still have CD players. 
that would be, um, I would say, the simplest way to find one that I have already out there. I think that's the one that I have, which I love that CD. And if it is that one. In, yeah, good. And for folks in Denver, do you teach uh, or lead yoga nidra meditations at both Samadhi and Kindness? Right now I'm just leading on Wednesdays at noon at Samadhi. And I'm not currently leading any at Kindness. Um, I, I, I expect that to change at some point. Um, the studio that I was teaching at, they actually closed that studio down and are going to open a new one. But currently I'm not offering any Yoga Nidra at Kindness and only one a week right now, which feels like much too little. Um, that's just how it is at the moment. I, I previously was leading three a week, and so I know that will shift at some point. I've actually been considering for quite some time adding a Friday evening one for those that want to create a deliberate endpoint for their week. Um, I just don't know when 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 I'll commit to that, but uh, it, it's an idea that's been floating out there. So for someone who'd like to go a little more full bore into this or more in depth, I know you do Yoga Nidra Immersions. When's your next Yoga Nidra Immersion, and is it at Samadhi? That's a good question. Um, we had it slotted for November to do the next Yoga Nidra Immersion, and we may have the opportunity to have other Yoga Nidra events around that time with some teachers that I've been networking with from some of the, the, the heads of the traditions that we've had before that may be coming back. So now we're kind of, things are a little up in the air in terms of are we going to have guest teachers come in and do more things around that time or will we move forward with my scheduled yoga nidra immersion? I, I actually was doing those one to two times a year and started leading the training every year and then sort of caught up in other things and the, the immersions have been less frequent, but I would like to get back on track to at least leading one of those a year. And there's a good chance um, there'll be one that shows up at another studio relatively soon in the area as well. I'm assuming that those would also show up on your website as they're scheduled? They will, yes. Okay, so folks can keep an eye out there. I think you've answered all my questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I uh, guess the only other thing um, I could mention since we were talking about the immersions, I do offer the teacher training right now once a year. Um, I've got one coming up in just a week and a half. It'll be two long weekends. It'll be offered at Samadhi. I offer it at Samadhi every May. And there is still some availability. Um, if anyone's interested, you can certainly go to my website to find out information on what's covered in the training. It is a very comprehensive training. It's 48 study hours total um, in, in class study hours. And um, it's probably my favorite thing that I do all year because I teach it in the context of Yoga Nidra, but reflecting back to what my first formal, well, I guess it was my second formal yoga teacher uh, taught me when I did my training was that um, it's all in there. It's all, it's a complete teaching. And so I really use the context of the yoga nidra training to, to teach the big picture of yoga and uh, in a way that I try to make very tangible for people, very applicable. So 
it's not something, it, it is esoteric and it's also extremely practical and, and trying to bridge these two worlds to recognize that, well, the human experience is something that's extremely vast. And if we can understand how it's unfolding and why we're ungraceful in the moments that we're ungraceful or unskillful, then we can move toward being much more graceful and skillful um, in our lives and in our spiritual practice. So uh, I, I, I just love being able to offer it. Well, that's wonderful. And I know I've taken your Yoga Nidra teacher training, I think it's been, what, four years ago now? And I'm it's sure it's yeah. only improved, like wine. I'm sure it has improved with age. So <laughs> I highly recommend Hopefully it's it. not fermenting too badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that kind, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with me. Um, we look forward to see where you branch out next in the world of Yoga Nidra. Well, thank you, Karen. I really appreciated our talk today. And, uh, yeah, thanks for your time. I hope that more people are encouraged to explore the practice and see just how much it can impact their lives if they if they commit to it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. All right. Thank you, Karen.